So hello and welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I am James Rosica. And I am Andres Lorente. And each week on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two films, usually one old and one new, and we try to make some comparisons and contrasts between the two. Uh, this week we watched Elvis, the brand new Baz Luhrmann extravaganza 2022. Extravaganza is the word. Is that yeah. the word? Yeah, yeah. We'll go into that for sure. Um, <laughs> and we also watched a film 95 years older than Elvis, and that is the original <laughs> jazz singer uh, featuring Al Jolson, and that film was made in 1927. And it's actually yeah. considered uh, the first sort of sound film, or the first film that has location sound. It's yeah, not a lot first, of it, but yeah. It's like, yeah, it's the first, the first feature. Apparently there were short films okay. with sync sound before this, but the first feature to, to have sync sound. And you're right, it's only a couple of minutes of sync sound, yeah. but this is what broke the mold, exactly. And a little bit that I'd read about it was that the um, a lot of the sync sound was actually improvised dialogue. The, the sync sound, I think, is for a few of the songs, for sure, but then there are a couple of dialogue scenes, and it looked like some of it was improvised um, right there, which is <laughs> so interesting. This is the first movie ever where they had, you know, the audience would hear the script yeah. and they went off script. Exactly. <laughs> what, a, what a terrible precedent to set. So, right, let's we'll start start with Elvis anyway. Yeah. Um, tell me tell me about tell tell me the story. Oh, I will. I'll uh, I'll say that on sheer length this is more than a three-act film in my mind, so I sort of Oof. forced it into I, I was craving structure, so I was trying to use this uh, cheat sheet I have to get it into structure so that I could review it. Um, it clocks in at about two hours, 45 minutes. Two, yeah. It's a long film. It's a big, big, big film. Um, so in some ways, it kind of feels like two different films. The The first 30 or 45 minutes, I, I wasn't really looking at my watch, but there's this big exposition and story building phase that uh, kind of comprises the first act, but it also is a... It's very different in character from the, the rest of the film. The rest of the film feels oh, yeah, more yeah. cinema-like. This has got lots of split-screen stuff going on. He's shooting all sorts of images. There's the comic book sequence at one point, fireworks going off on screen, all sorts of graphics. So feels very different from the rest of the film once it gets uh, cruising. Um, this is an $80 million film shot in Australia and got Tom Hanks and his wife sick, I believe. Oh, right. I can imagine working with Baz Luhrmann might make... Some actors so, sick, but someone is fine. Was, it, was this the, was this their COVID picture then? Yeah, was I this... think so. Yeah, ah, yeah. So right now were, I remember. Yeah, it was big news. Uh, March twenty twenty. That I don't know. He tweeted. I don't tweet, but he was tweeting that uh, they were stranded in Australia. And then I thought backwards, and I realized, oh, the, when I saw that the film was made in Australia, I realized, oh, that's why he was stuck there. Right. Um, I got to say that I felt like I was on speed watching this film, <laughs> um, which happens with a number of the Lerman films, I think. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's, that's his signature style, so right? I'm also, I'm also going to try and review it fast and furious um, <laughs> to try and catch that energy. Um, my favorite part of the film was the coffee. And that's <laughs> totally out of context. I had just gone to buy my espresso beans and I had them ground in the store and they were in my backpack right next to me. And they were super <laughs> aromatic, and I smelled coffee throughout the whole picture, and that made me happy. Uh, <laughs> I was practically snorting coffee, and they, I had the caffeine buzz, so I was kind of prepared for this film, um, and I needed it to keep up. But I, I realized that I was in a happy space just because I could smell this beautiful coffee the whole film, and it was two, again, two hours, 45 minutes. 
I'm going to say by rule of thumb, that's an hour too long for sure, but uh, we'll get into <laughs> yeah, it. There's, um, too much, there's too much film here. There's a lot of film here. Um, Story World is uh, the kind of the American South and, and Glam Vegas or Las Vegas in the 1950s to the 1970s for the most part. They move around a little bit. Um, it's definitely a biopic. It's early on. It's exposition heavy. I'll talk about biopics a little bit probably at the end. Um, and just to... As an, at the outset, I'll just say, generally, a biopic where you're covering the entire life of a of a character or subject seems a bit much to me. I wish he'd just sort of focused on a little section of his life or something that we didn't know as well. So um, it does cover the life of Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. Um, for me, the inciting incident is the, uh, the Wiggly Pelvis performance. It's on a radio show in front of a live audience, and... Boy, women and men seem to be going orgasmic for Elvis once he starts shaking his hips. He's very nervous at first, but this becomes sort of a uh, a calling card for him or a touchstone for him. Um, the problem in the film is that this character, Colonel Tom Parker, who's kind of known as the snowman, um, he wants Elvis as his product to shop. He wants exclusive rights to this guy. So history tells us we know a little bit about this story. I knew a little bit about Tom Parker going into it, but very controlling figure as the business manager or the or the manager of Elvis Presley. So he sort of becomes an antagonist fixture. fixture. Um, his past is really sketchy. He's not Dutch. He's not American. Kind of like Tom Hanks in the very role. Definitely not Dutch and uh, not American. <laughs> uh, the Hanks accent is it's disconcerting. Uh, yes. <laughs> and one of my why questions is, there's got to be some actor, a Dutch actor, someone who could do this role a little bit better and, and capture the accent, because I just never felt like... I think it's it's problematic because it's sort of a southern U.S. Dutch accent. And you're trying to do a lot there, and I think that's really challenging for a, for an actor to do. So um, Tom Hanks has done a lot of accents. I think some of his weakest work is when he tries to put on accents, so I wasn't too happy about that. Um, and then um, so by the end of the Act 1 curtain, it's kind of that... Um, Colonel Tom Parker, he's got Elvis in his grip a little bit, but he really wants to get this exclusive uh, agreement. Um, There's this devil tempting on the Ferris wheel kind of moment where Parker has just led Elvis out of this room of mirrors where Elvis can't really see himself or find his way out. Very symbolic, all this. Um, And then Parker takes him into this world of carnival geeks, and he's the snowman. He's going to pull a fast one and, and sort of a... Uh, pull the rug right under Elvis's feet by tempting him with this uh, this life of glamour and success. Uh, real uh, kind of a classic uh, trope, I guess, in the industry where Elvis literally walks out of a room at the end of uh, Act One and goes up on the Ferris wheel and he's being tempted by uh, this devil-like character. So um, that's the first act. It runs about 45 minutes or 50 minutes. It's long. It is um, long, Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, there's, there's a point, you know, not very long after that. Mm-hmm. I, I also wasn't watching my watch during the film, yeah. but I kind of it, it felt like we had, you know, quite a lot of story covered already at this point, and not very long after um, Tom Parker takes over his career, yeah. um, there's a lot more hip shaking, and Elvis gets arrested for for um, 
uh, obscenity. Perfect. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I was kind of thinking, oh, here we go. So this is like you know, this is this is the this is the middle of the film. This has got to be like you know the the, the middle of Act Two now. Yeah. And I checked my watch, and we were like forty five minutes yes. in or something. I'm thinking, oh, wait a second. This yeah. Is, this is barely a third of the way into the film, yeah, but yeah. it really feels like this is the big turning point of the in the kind of the middle of it. So it does feel it feels front loaded and yeah. kind of strangely lumpy in shape. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So as I said, it's craving structure and. Fair, you know, I'm, I'm using some terms here to try and give you an idea of the structure, but it didn't fit really well because I also had the midpoint as um, sort of the Steve Allen show where Elvis has to be in a tuxedo and tails. He's trying to re- reinvent himself as like the family Elvis or something like that. Um, ends up defying the authorities in a sort of a, 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 a pelvic thrusting laden uh, show <laughs> at a car. Oh, it's in a baseball park or something like that. Um and that's kind of where there's a big change in, you know, in how Parker wants to handle him and how Elvis ends up sort of being um, uh, handled. And there's this mentor and innocent guy kind of uh, theme going on. And you definitely feel like uh, Parker's doing deals with the devil and he kind of is the devil himself. And um, that scene is kind of interesting because there, this is the one moment where Lerman gets a little political. It's intercut, the scene where Elvis kind of defies the authorities and goes ahead and um, performs the way he wants to, um, is intercut with this uh, Southern fascistic rally uh, surrounded by Confederate mm. flags. It's a senator, I think, who's got a problem with his uh, Elvis's obscenity. And um, it's kind of like Lerman making a political statement on Trumpism. It, it seems a little over the top. I mean, everything with Lerman is OTT. Um, but I think that was kind of a political moment there. And again, he's probably making this film 2019, 2018, 19. Took him eight years, I believe, to sort of develop the script and write it. It's his first film since Gatsby, which was 2012. So um, 10 years between films and eight years uh, working on this. So it feels like he's hit the, the sign of the times a little bit with that one moment. I mean, they do, they do kind of fold a few modern mannerisms in. One of the one of the headlines later on in the film is something like Elvis is cancelled. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean, so you know, he is definitely trying to, yeah. to to playfully engage with a little bit of kind of yeah. contemporary chit chat. I think so. I mean, you know, and it's cute, and I think it works. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. And I'll come back to that too. I think he's really trying here. Lerman is definitely trying here. Um, uh, act two, Curtin, I had basically as Elvis is kind of conscripted into the army. He's going to spend two years out of the country. Um, his mother dies. Ooh, seemingly of heartbreak while he's in the um, army, but according, like he he gets shipped off and she almost immediately just her health fails yeah. and she dies. That's how it plays in the movie. I looked at the World Wide Web a little bit, and Elvis apparently made it home to see her before she died. But um, for dramatic purposes, that really feels right. also like the end of Act Two because there's a death and all that. But it's again, it's so long that this this formula doesn't really work very well. <laughs> I don't think. Um, there's a new right after that though. There's the pinch of uh, love, Priscilla. Um, I don't know Priscilla's maiden name, but Priscilla, who she who will become Priscilla Presley. It's it's Bewley, isn't it? I think okay. is her maiden name. Yeah, ah. she enters the scene, and Elvis falls in love. He has never met anyone like her, and uh, so now we have a sort of a new angle. But there's more death too. Like Martin Luther King dies. Martin Luther King Jr. dies. Uh, 1968, obviously, um, and really about a month later, maybe two months later, um, Robert F. Kennedy um, also right, dies. Yeah. And that se- Elvis seems to take those very heavily in this film. Um, so there's a, the turmoil of the 60s is sort of catching up with Elvis, too. And this is sort of beyond his big years. We're really probably late 50s and early 60s. Um, 
he Lerman sort of covers really quickly the whole film career. Um, it might <laughs> yes, it's a montage, isn't it? This, yeah. this enormous, you know, enormous kind of segment of of, um, of Elvis's life. Yeah, and you know, the, and the bit which you know a lot of people would say is the thing that kind of ruined him really that he put all his energy into movies yeah. when it should have been making yeah. records, and that's just kind of presented as a quick montage, isn't it? Yeah, that's you know that's kind of one of my um, sort of complaints about the film. Perhaps we'll, we'll come back to yeah. that after the pricey, but yeah. Um, it's, it's uh, kind of it's strange what things he chooses to spend time yeah. on, what things he doesn't. Yeah, and it's it's sort of meta meta because he's doing these montages of films and montages and just kind of covering a lot of ground very quickly. And it, I think we know we didn't know that he did act, but uh, it's uh, quite a bit. He, he ultimately ends up spending more time on this Christmas special that Tom Parker has uh, signed him on for, um, and. Um, that's that's a, I like some of the scenes in there. It's kind of interesting to see how um, the the scene goes about. Elvis wants to sort of reclaim the rock mantle, and he goes to these guys who've um, worked with the Rolling Stones and others, and sort of co-opts Parker's Christmas story, takes all the Christmas out of it. And it's it's actually known as one of his great performances, where he got his own bill, his own uh, the old band back together, and some guests, and they did sort of a really stripped down studio show where he's uh, really just playing guitar and singing with them, and um, so Elvis is sort of rediscovering himself, but then there's this new temptation later when uh, Tom Parker seems to be um, in debt to some evil casino owners because he's gambling so much that um, he sort of has to bring Elvis out to Las Vegas to um, pay off his debt. So he signs Elvis onto this long-term contract um, in Las Vegas um, at a hotel or a casino, and Parker's got his talons in Elvis at this point, and he's ultimately using fear of death threats against Elvis to keep him, like, isolated in Las right, Vegas yeah. when he's, Elvis is actually newly sort of aspirationally wants to go to Europe. He wants to go around the States. Um, but he ends up sort of just getting um, stuck in Las Vegas for the rest of his career. And that's the where he just he sort of disassociates. He hangs out in his hotel room. He's doing drugs. He declines into that bloated and blathering lounge entertainer that we kind of remember him as. Um, And at the same time, we're sort of learning that Parker, he was never a colonel and he's unscrupulous and he's a gambling addict and he owes a lot of money around town and he's using Elvis basically to, um, to, uh, pay his way through. Yeah. So it kind of ends around there. It's sad. Um, Elvis's father, who was his business manager, had basically done a very bad job with the money and Parker was stealing them from them all along. So it looks like Elvis is going to get out of the arrangement and go do what he wants to do, but he owes Colonel Tom Parker over $8 million from everything from like small uh, purchases at supermarkets in the 1950s all the way up until whatever he was doing (laughs) in the 1970s. And um, so it actually gets him stuck in Las Vegas um, and then he eventually dies. And it kind of, it slightly glosses over those because I I was expecting almost any, you know, any Elvis biopic to sort of linger on those, mm. you know, those final days yeah. of the final meal. And it glosses all over all yeah, that, yeah. doesn't it? It's, yeah. So we get a little bit of the bloated Elvis at the end. Yeah. But, um, but you know, he's allowed a little bit of dignity as he sails off into the sunset. Um, so that's kind of the film, yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I, I got to the end of this film and I was asking myself, um, you know, one of those top three classic screenwriting questions. Yeah. I was asking myself, whose story is this film? Yeah. Because I came out thinking, well, you know, it, it's not really Elvis's story. No. Nope. Insofar as, you know, like, like we said, with the movie career, um, you know, a lot of the, 
important parts of his story are roughly skipped over in a montage, aren't they? The yeah. movies, the tours, and you know, even that that part in his life between him, you know, as a sort of a young boy, as a schoolboy, being inspired by gospel singers. Yeah. And then him, you know, starting up a band and starting out on the circuit before he's discovered by um, by Tom, Tom Parker. Parker yeah. You know, even that bit kind of doesn't really appear on screen. And that you know, those kind of formative sort of early years in the band were actually the bits that I would be most interested in. So it feels like we don't see an awful lot of Elvis that we don't already know about Precisely. Elvis. Precisely. And so you become away thinking, well, is it Colonel Tom's story? But it's not really Colonel Tom's story either. No. A lot of the things that we learn about him, we are told. Yeah. Rather than um, rather than we are shown, mm-hmm. you know, so we're told that he's you know a kind of a, you know a Dutch man with no passport and a shady history yeah. and was never a colonel. But actually, we don't really see anything about what um, Tom Parker's story is. Yep. I came away thinking, if the story belongs to anyone in this movie, the story is the story of the music. Mm-hmm. So the music is born like in Memphis on Beale Street, and then the music yeah. kind of grows and evolves. Um, and then you know, the, and the music kind of outgrows the, the people who sang it. Even so, uh, it's yeah. like it feels like it's the biopic of the music of Elvis rather than of, of of Elvis or the people who are with him. That's a yeah, that's a generous take. I think that's yeah. <laughs> I'm a I'm a kind critic, but I want to combine it, and I'll talk about more about the music. And uh, I think you obviously we're doing two music films here, but um, I do know the answer to the question of whose film it is. It is Baz Luhrmann's film. <laughs> Um, oh, yes. And I have a lot to say about that because I really dislike most of his work and I, I really dislike his style. Um, and in this film, and it's in, I think in many of his films, he just can't get out of his own way long enough to tell a good story. <laughs> and it's all smoke and mirrors. And, you know, I guess there's a connection to Tom Parker being all about smoke and mirrors, but um, he can It's beautifully colorful, voluminous smoke, isn't yes. it? And it's a beautifully oh. decorated mirror. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he plans his images very, uh, in a very detailed fashion, um, but he doesn't get away from them long enough to actually tell the story. So um, for me, this film, to a certain extent, um, because it also combines um, the story of Las Vegas, the emergence and evolution of Las Vegas, ah. this film sort of represents the the end of civilization for me. I mean, I just think <laughs> it's so superficial and it just, it doesn't inform us very much. It gives us a little idea about what a bastard Tom Parker was, but you're, you're spot on in saying that it's not enough about Tom Parker to really give us much information about him either. And it's all sort of, uh, I don't know, it's a circumspect, I guess. I mean, there, there's nothing really definite about it. Um, there's very little factual in it and, and, when we talk about biopics, I think you'll see that, you know, I think the veracity is important, but to get around that and tell a good story, sometimes you make things up or exaggerates them. And and I, I say it's the end of civilization. I'm exaggerating because Baz Luhrmann always exaggerates. Um, um, <laughs> and I think he's he's the snowman here, too. That's the other thing is that I think there's this fear of getting exposed as someone who can't really tell stories, but I can do all this picture shit and um, from videos and commercials, <laughs> right? Um, so it ends up being very surface and... He's just always struck me as he was probably a great video director, great commercial director. I did like a couple early films. I thought Strictly Ballroom was a good film. Yeah. I kind of liked Romeo and Juliet, too. I thought it was pretty. I, I really enjoy Romeo plus Juliet. Yeah, it's, I think it's a lovely film. I yeah. enjoy watching that again. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, they're, the, all the films are much more about style than material. Um, and I, I would love to see him make something small again, like a Strictly Ballroom. I think that'd be really interesting. Um, 
And here, I don't know if you saw the credits. Um, he actually sort of has several writing credits. I think he has. He's in there as being yeah. part of two pairs, as well as writing the story, um, which is just just lots of Baz Luhrmann. This film is definitely Baz Luhrmann. Um, it's, I mean, it's, I think there are four. There are four writers credited in total. I think. I think it's five, and he's is two. It five. Some, someone came up with the story, wasn't it? Yeah. I think it's right, yeah. I, think I just have a look to see who the other writers were, actually. Craig Pierce, I think, is the other top-billed yeah. writer who's who's worked with Baz on like, most of his other pictures, yeah. Romeo and Juliet, and he's written this Pistols, yeah. uh, the Sex Pistols um, series for Netflix. Okay, oh, that's and then, okay. And then I think it's Jeremy Donner and Sam Bromwell are the other writers yeah. that I wrote down on my list who are okay. also kind of um, Lerman collaborators. Yeah, so it's, he's, yeah, he's, it's, it's his film. There's no question about it. He's all over it, um, made it in Australia. Um, on his home turf and all that. I mean, it's definitely his film. So it, it, I don't think it's about Elvis or Tom Parker. For me, it's really about Baz Luhrmann. But for, for all the kind of the, the sparkle and the, the superficiality, there are some great scenes in this film. But all of the great scenes, all of the scenes that I really loved, you know, obviously are the music scenes. Yeah. Um, okay, good. And yeah. so I think you know, there's like an early scene where um, the young, the boy Elvis is caught up in like a sort of gospel um, church service. Yeah. And he's just kind of vibrating with excitement, yeah. this kind of religious ecstasy. And then, you know, the, his performance in the Christmas special, you know, and his like early yep. live shows with girls sort of screaming yep. at him. These are electric, exciting scenes, skillfully, skillfully um, filmed. You know, I don't think you know, no one watching the film wasn't tapping their toes during those scenes. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think the music scenes really work. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And sometimes, I mean, I... Sometimes they're not Elvis performances of the songs. I mean, I think the best ones are where it's like literally an Elvis performance. But Lerman does this in a lot of films where he remakes songs with some modern artist. And I don't like that mm. moment. I don't like the way he uses music generally in films. And especially in the first act of this film, he's he's enslaved to cutting to music. He's always like if he hears a snare drum, he has to make a cut. So <laughs> I was, you know, timing shots at a, in, in the very beginning. And it was two seconds at most for most shots. And a lot of them were mm. just on a, a drum hit. It was just he's really just a musical cutter. And that's why I think maybe he makes great videos or he could. Um, but I don't like what he does with music generally in um in his films, um, but I yeah, one, the note that I had to myself, you you said it much better. I said the musical segments are gold. If if only one could cut out about sixty minutes of the drama, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, all the, all the plot scenes. Are, I wrote in my little note here that the plot scenes are basically people explaining to each other mm -hmm. what happened while we were watching or listening to a song. Yeah, it's yeah. Like they're, they're 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 kind of yeah, pretty dry and factual. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but yeah, and that you know, you you could say, oh, cut the music scenes, but those are the best scenes, and that would probably bring it down under two hours or something. There, certainly closer to two hours. Um, yeah, there's something on the spectrum about the film. It just feels very enervated a lot, especially the opening thirty minutes. And it's you get through that thirty thirty or forty minutes, and then you're, there's finally this dialogue scene where Elvis is in the kitchen with his mother, and it just feels really different. And it's also, you know, the dialogue's not super strong, the acting's not super strong. Um, so it, it's, you know, he's just amping up, amping up and amping up to this end of the first act. And then all of a sudden the, the, the story starts to come through the actors and it's not, it's not very strong in that way. I just, I wonder how well he directs actors and emotions and stories because it doesn't seem like his strong suit. He doesn't seem terribly interested in that. He's much more interested in just blowing us away with visuals and very, very quick cuts. Let me talk quickly about looks and glances, because we learned so much about looks and glances at film school. Um, 
there's a lot of storytelling that comes in these very unnatural um, just cuts, these close-ups to characters that are supposed to be very like heavy and tell us what's going on. But they just don't. You haven't seen the actor much in the scene. All of a sudden, you know, they're giving that look of, oh, um, this is what I'm supposed to be feeling right now. Um, it just didn't feel like organic uh, by any means. And and then I thought, well, is it just that he's super efficient? He's giving us the one look that we need at the right time, or is it just awkward? And for me, it just felt um, more awkward. And I think it's because he sort of insists on a fairly pacey movie at all times that when he goes to a look and glance, it should be sort of ponderous uh, or telling. <laughs> it actually just ends up being weird. <laughs> the thing it reminds me of, I don't yeah. know whether you've seen Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, a couple. Yeah, yeah a couple the, years ago. Right, yeah. So, so, yeah. yeah, the Queen, the Queen sort of biopic. Yeah, um, and uh, I think in that film there are a bunch of musical sequences which are you know outstanding and electric and really exciting. Yeah, um, and I think the story of the film is that you know it was half made by Brian Singer, who then was kind of sacked, uh, okay. and it was all kind of you know uh, pretty kind of uh, tricky. Yeah. And I think he had probably shot all these exciting uh, musical sequences, yeah. um, but then hadn't shot all the story bits in between. Oh, and sure. they brought in a second director, Dexter Fletcher, who came in, he stepped in. And then um, the film really looks like he had to, on you know, with, with little time and little money, quickly film a bunch of story scenes that could just fill in the gaps between the musical sequences oh, and so that film is very you know really really feels like a game of two halves yeah. you have like an exciting music sequence and then you have a you know a really quite poor um dull soap opery scene where people walk in and they explain what their feelings are and then they walk out yeah. again um and this film has a little bit of that feel as well that you can feel that Baz Luhrmann is really excited by the the music scenes yeah. And then you're forced to add some plot scenes in between to stitch it up, yeah. you know, so that it turns out to be a whole feature. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, this is the other classic screenwritery film. Uh, what do you think it is really about mm. this film? Um, I have that note in my writing here. I said, what's it about? I knew you were going to ask me that. I knew <laughs> See, I always ask the same you questions. Do. You know it's what good, I like. Though. It's a good one, though. Um, Here's my take is that as a biopic, I don't think it really has to be about anything. You're just trying to tell someone's uh, life story. But um, there's a lot about father figures who are failing us in this film. There's stuff about making deals with devils and that we never really know what we're going to get ourselves into. Um, and then there's some interesting race stuff in this film, too, because Elvis is this sort of fluid character. He's a white man who moves kind of effortlessly between white and black music and white and black culture and friendships and relationships at a time when racism is like super strong and you know even though we're a hundred years beyond uh, the end of slavery um and that kind of connects to the jazz singer too in a weird way i think but mm. that i mean i'm working hard i there's not a whole lot of that um but I, I did feel like he's an integrated character and there's all this potential of him. He's so moved by Martin Luther King's death and Kennedy's death. He's about to get political. So I think this film is to a certain extent about just potential gone awry or potential never fully satisfied. Because Elvis, yeah. I mean, he's got some great music. And then I think Las Vegas sort of just destroys him as a person and as a musician, even though it's a comfortable life. And he wanted to take chances based on what I'm learning in this film. So for me, it's mostly about that. I think it's just a potential that just never was fully realized. I uh, I wrote here my little paragraph um, themes. I think it, the theme of the movie, if I'm going to summarize it, it's keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That feels like this is what um, this is what they do, or at least at least be careful who you trust. Yeah. And because, the, um, yeah. you know, Elvis, for all his 
you know, for all his talents, yeah, um, you know, seems to have been yeah a bit of a rube and an easy mark, yeah, yeah. for Colonel Tom, yeah, um, which is yeah, and that's a story that we've heard before and we'll hear again yeah. as well. Two really potent lines of dialogue that I think also help us a little bit are, um, I think he, there's this Captain Marvel re- reference that Tom Parker um, sort of feeds back to Elvis after he said it early on in the film. It says, the rock of eternity is forever just beyond our reach. Comes at a big <laughs> moment. And then Elvis is sort of pondering. He's kind of bloated on drugs in the back of a limousine. There's stuff flying around him. And he says, a bird that finally lands only when it dies. He's talking about uh, um, that. So the, I think, you know, those were like theme lines of dialogue. Um, but as I said before, it, as a biopic, it doesn't really need to be about anything, I don't think. I mean, there certainly other biopics just kind of cover the life and and there's a built-in audience. So you, you just make the film. Yeah. People go yeah. and see it. Um, we know most of the stories of people's lives if we're fans. So the ones that tell an entire life, um, especially if the veracity is not there, it's it's just hard for me to swallow because I don't need to see their whole life. So I think if you can um, really focus on one singular incident that uh, changed their life, I think that's much more interesting for me. Otherwise, I'd rather see a, a documentary where I'm really learning something and you know seeing real footage of the of the artist. Um, so I mean, you're kind of limited to a certain extent, uh, to a certain yeah. extent, by truth. That's the thing about biopics. Is and here, you know, everyone's going to play fast and loose with the facts in a biopic, but you 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 can't just make anything up. You've got to have some make it all up. Yeah. I mean, we do get some documentary footage right at the end, don't we? We yeah. get some real footage of the older Presley yeah. just at the end of the film. Yeah. And I must say, um, although Austin Butler does a great great job job yep. in this film, great he does a great job. job but you know, but um, the the charisma of the real Elvis. Yeah completely outshines him in those last kind of two minutes when the real Elvis yeah. is on screen. I and that's not a healthy that's... Elvis either. I mean, he's at like 60%. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think, yeah, Austin Butler was great. Um, and it was this kind of thing where they, I think they, too, at times they took some bad lines and, and kind of a bad script and, and, you know, made some good performances of it. Tom Hanks is just kind of weird. I mean, it's not like he does a bad <laughs> job or anything, but it's just so weird that that's all I could write. Tom Hanks is weird. It's not, yeah, it's not an obvious role for him, but then good for him for trying something yeah, new. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll tell you what movie this, this of, of all the movies I was trying to compare it to, I'll tell you what it most reminds me of or what I feel this movie most resembles yeah. is Amadeus. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah, years ago. Yeah, yeah. Which is you know, which is also about yeah. you know someone who is sort of um, mediocre but controlling, yeah. um, who kind of destroys the talent of a, of a younger, oh, yeah. kind of more talented Ooh, good, musician. Yeah, good pickup. Okay, so, well... Um, I don't know. I enjoyed Elvis. I think, yeah, well, for all its faults, yeah, I didn't regret the time I spent watching it. It's good fun. Yeah. So that's that. That's one film which is all about you know a white man making money off yeah. uh, black people's music. Uh-huh. Let's have a quick break, and then <laughs> we will come back and talk about another film about a white man making money out of black people's music. Uh, and we'll talk about the jazz singer. See you in a minute. Doctor Ezekiel. Yeah. You may not know this, but I once struggled with some localized paralysis. No, really? Yes. That's terrible. It was in the the buttocks, which I believe in England you <laughs> pronounce buttocks. buttocks. Buttocks, that's correct. That's the medical term, yes. The thing about the buttocks that many people may not understand is that they are largely comprised of the gluteus maximus. <laughs> which right. I believe comes from the Latin for greatest or largest muscle, is that correct? Yes. 
But they're also attached to the legs. So because of my buttocks paralysis, I couldn't walk for some time. Oh, dear. I called my doctor, Kristen. That's not right. her real name. And she promptly said, why are you calling me? You get your 15-minute visit once a year. Stop calling me. <laughs> I said, Dr. Dagwood, that's not her real surname. That's, that's not her name. I said, doctor, I think I'm temporarily paralyzed. What can I do? And then she said, and in case you haven't guessed, I'm actually reenacting a fictional conversation right here. <laughs> so this didn't really actually happen? No, absolutely not. This is a fake advertisement. For our <laughs> listeners who are begging for advertisements, places to spend their money, this is fake. Haven't you heard of Paralastop? <laughs> I hadn't. But I'm so glad I called my doctor, although she is not glad that I called her. Paralastop is an OTC, or over-the-counter medication. Do you say that in England, over-the-counter? You do. Yeah, oh. we do. And we do. You, we do. And then do you shorthand with OTC? No, no, we don't. Okay. No, but it's it's the stuff where it's 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 either so powerful or so embarrassing that you have to speak to somebody face to face. You can't just take it off the shelf oh, and pay okay. for it. <laughs> well, uh, Paralastop is an over-the-counter medication that can provide relief for a number of types of temporarily localized paralysis. It's kind of the opposite of what you do for a living, isn't it, Jimmy? Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You actually I'm trying, paralyze, I'm to people. paralyze people as much as I can. <laughs> But this could be an opportunity for you, too. Like, you could temporarily <laughs> could paralyze good them work. Yeah. and offer them some Paralastop. <laughs> so ask, ask your physician. Well, yeah, that's coming up. Yeah, that's the next part. Um, <laughs> while it was a great discovery and a cure for me, Paralastop isn't for everyone. Consult your doctor, but don't call my doctor because she apparently only takes fictional phone consultations. <laughs> Side effects... Uh, can include but aren't limited to loss of sensation in the extremities, difficulty breathing, stroke, high blood pressure, and temporary paralysis. Go figure. <laughs> in which case, you should immediately get your money back. Exactly. We don't do that. We don't know. We just take money. We don't give it back. If you're in need of relief from temporary paralysis, ask for Paralastop at your pharmacy, grocery, or drug dealer now. <laughs> Paralastop makes the paralysis stop. We're back uh, after the ad break. Uh, we're going to talk about the jazz singer, nineteen twenty-seven film. Um, uh, so, so the jazz singer is at number ninety in the American Film Institute mm. list of greatest American films. Um, the writer Alfred Cohen was nominated at the first ever Oscars uh, for the script for this film. Uh, directed by Anne Crossland, uh, written as a, as a script from a play by Samuel Raffleson. Uh, this is a seminal film, mm. mostly remembered because it's the first um, talkie. And, you know, like all movie history, it wasn't actually the first talkie. Um, so there were short films um, that had had uh, sync dialogue or sync music before this. I think sync music, sync, think sync dialogue was a new thing. And Warner Brothers had come up with a system called Vitaphone. Yeah. Um, which was uh, basically the the uh, the soundtrack to the film was stamped onto a 16 inch record, a 16 inch phonograph record. And then the player was coupled to the projector motor um, so that they would stay in sync. 
Um, and apparently, um, the jazz singer, it was technically extremely complicated uh, for um, to, to, to project. There were 15 different reels, 15 different discs. Um, and uh, out of all that, basically the film uh, kind of it's like 90 minutes isn't it 87 minutes yeah. something like that it has about two minutes of dialogue and six songs and the rest of it is just intertitles like the silent films that have preceded it but nonetheless the, the fact that, the, that, that for the first time ever people were moving their lips and we heard what they say this was an absolute sensation so it made a lot of money for warners compared to how much they'd laid out for it um big hit um it's what we remember as the birth of the talkies so let's so um so had you ever seen the jazz singer before? I had not. I think I'd seen uh, the sort of the climax uh, performance when he's on stage in, right, okay. in dress. We'll talk about that. Um, um, and then, oh God, Neil Diamond starred in a remake in 1980. Yeah, that was I a remake. Like 1980, of, was it? Yeah, Something I think, like or maybe that. 78 even. I saw pieces Oof. of it on HBO as a kid, but I didn't really see the whole film. So, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd never seen that. I'd never seen the Neil Diamond mm-hmm film um so a very quick recap of the plot yeah. so 1927 it's set in uh lower east side manhattan in the jewish ghetto there um the 13 year old uh jackie uh, rabinovitz um he's the son of a rabbi um and he sings jazz songs or raggy time songs like at a local bar um because he loves jazz music um and this kind of scandalizes his Jewish family. His father wants him to become a cantor at the synagogue like he is. Um, so on discovering that uh, Jackie is singing these jazz songs, he gives his son a, a, a hiding. And then Jackie runs away, uh, leaving his parents. Mother is heartbroken. And we cut to 10 years later and uh, Jackie's in showbiz. He's kind of renounced his Jewish heritage. He's called Jack Robin now. Uh, and we see him uh, singing a song. He's at this kind of cabaret night and someone says, oh, Jack, come and give us a song. And he gets up on the stage. And the, f- the first thing that he says, these are the first words spoken in sync dialogue in any movie, any every time he says, you ain't heard nothing yet, yeah. which apparently was Al Jolson, the actor's um, catchphrase. He sings um, Dirty Hands, Dirty Face, um, which is a hit song at the time. He's spotted by Mary D, who is a, a theatre dancer. Um, so she's talent spotted him. He becomes a big star. He gets a Broadway show. He returns back to New York, returns to his parental home. His mother is delighted that Jackie has come home. Uh, the father comes home. He has one one word of spoken dialogue, which is stop. When uh, when um, Jackie is, is playing uh, and singing songs on the on the family piano for his mother. So he says, stop. Um, the father doesn't want to have anything to do with him, throws him out of the house. The father falls ill. Um, then Jack has a big show coming up on Broadway um, and he cancels the opening night so that he can sub as the cantor at the local synagogue um, and return to his Jewish roots. And his father in his deathbed has the windows open and he hears his son singing um, uh, in the synagogue. uh, And he says to his wife, oh, our our son has come home and dies. And then, and then, uh, some months later, Jack is a big star on Broadway and he sings that song that we have all seen, uh, Mammy, to his mother, who is sitting in the front row of the audience. That is the end of the film. Um, that's it. Really simple story. Mm-hmm. Very simple. A to B. It's all about it's another music picture. It's all about the music, all about the songs. Controversially, not only is it about um, somebody who is uh, making money out of 
uh, raggy time music, which is you know, music of black origin. But uh, in this film, as was the cultural norm, uh, he does it in blackface. Yeah. Um, and I must say, I, f- I found this film fairly flummoxing. I found it pretty difficult to pass kind of uh, the, the whole the whole thing really the film the film is from it's from nearly 100 years ago yeah. and i don't know what you felt it felt to me like a film from 300 years ago it felt incredibly distant on the on the podcast we have watched some old movies yeah. and not uncommonly the good ones we pick yeah. um still feel modern and contemporary and this is absolutely the opposite it feels much older than its 100 years yeah agreed um yeah I kind it's funny how like the um, the character that Al Jolson plays, and the the story is kind of based on um, a short story which was based on the real life of Al Johnson. So the character that he plays, he's thirteen at the beginning of the movie, and then twenty three. Uh, Al Jolson at the time was forty one when he made the film, and I must say in the film oh. he looks fifty one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I kind of yeah, unbelievable. And he kind of has makes these kind of sort of strange girding faces and has these um, you know very kind of exaggerated mannerisms. Um, and, and even kind of like I find it a little bit difficult to interpret what his facial expressions meant for a lot of the time when he's uh, when he's singing. Yeah, and there's there's this thing about like the silent films that I think requires a, a different kind of acting and in some ways better acting it's because you've got to use your body you've got to use your face a lot more you don't have dialogue as a as a tool really uh, there's a little in this film but very very little um, and you, you know I think it comes out this was a play at one point it, it feels very stagey so you know the acting is always kind of over the top and exaggerated because they're mm. doing it with their bodies more than their voices um and yeah, for that reason, I think it does feel old. It almost feels older than that. So you've brought up a good point. Like it, it's not just theater; it's almost vaudeville in some way. And even the music, yeah, the music is, is not what I would call jazz. So I guess in 1927, that was jazz. It felt more like vaudeville, even though they're on stage. Um, it just had that feel to it. So yeah, it feels more 1860s than 1920s, and it is. Yeah, it's a hundred years old at this point, or 95 years old. So um, it was quite. Uh, yeah, it was quite. Um, Quite astonishing. I think you're, you've got a good point there. Seeing somebody um, black up to do their yeah. act is, you know, it, it just seems kind of absurd and shocking and you know, uh, sort of difficult to understand with, uh, with a modern eye. Yeah. But uh, supposedly this was this was a social norm. I mean, this was this was a social norm when I was very young. I don't know about about when you were growing up. Yeah. In the seventies in the UK, there was a. A popular Saturday evening television program called the Black and White Minstrel Show, um, where there would be a, a bunch of white male singers who would black up yeah. um, and then sing these kind of um, these you know old timey songs. Yeah. Um, and you know, and even then in the early seventies, this was considered oh yeah, it's just kind of it's a you know traditional, it's a bit yeah. of fun, that's all right. It just it feels like a um, so a message from another world. Mm. Apparently, yeah. Jolson was, um, you know, he did a lot for black rights um, and um, to kind of to give uh, credit to black performers. And he was popular in the black community. Mm. So yeah, so the way that it looks to us now um, is very different to the way that it looks now. I was trying to think, think of an equivalent. If you remade the jazz singer today, it would have to be something like it would be like a Republican senator's son 
who goes out and becomes a drill MC. That would that would that would be my my kind of jazz singer remake. Yeah. There's something about this kind of these raggy time songs, which are just so shocking and so controversial. Yeah. Um, that, that uh, you know, if you catch your son singing one of these songs then you would kick him out of the house forever. Sure. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to enter the mindset of an age where that was, you know, a normal way to behave. It's, um, I, I put that scene down as my late surprise of the film. And it's not a surprise at all because we all know that it's going to happen in the, in the film, that he's going to paint face and, and perform. Um, but we, we beforehand, you know, if, if, you, if you come into this not knowing anything, you have no idea that he's about to do this. Mm. And it's, for, it's, it's not until the dress rehearsal or something like that, like the moment of truth. And there's this very strange moment because it's a guilty moment, but it's kind of the wrong guilt. Like he, he's <laughs> betraying one culture um, while belittling another one. And it's all very <laughs> matter of fact. Like he's, he's not going to, at that point, he's, does, it's not clear that he's going to sing uh, is it called the Cold Nidri? He's not going to sing um, yeah. in, the, in the synagogue, um, and he's feeling terribly guilty about that. But actually, you know, blackening his face and performing as a completely different style actor, he feels no guilt whatsoever. It's really, really quite striking. Um, and I thought I, that caught me off guard. And then, like the other idea is like, why? Yeah, I, why did people do this in the first place? It just seems <laughs> such a strange thing to do. Yeah. So that's my why, it's, why, why question. And the, uh, I was, yeah, I found it confusing. It was, yeah, it, it befuddled. It was a, it's a strange thing. The, the thing that I think could have made it really interesting, and it was obvious to me, was I thought he might go home in blackface to deliver the the Kol Nidri oh. in the synagogue in blackface. It just seemed, for me, it just oh seemed like it, it was right there, ready to happen, which would have been really, I think, provocative. Um, and it just would have, I think it would have improved the film, but I, I mean, I'm sure that would have just been completely, you know, uh, unacceptable <laughs> at that time, too. It's, it's, uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's something else. It's a, <laughs> it's a I was, it's I, piece of history. It's something else. I was I was kind of surprised how sexed up the film was as well. But there's kind of there's a lot of dancing girls in yeah. in kind of little short shorts yeah, yeah. and a lot of high kicking. Well, it's Roaring Twenties, um, yeah. It's a, a pretty, yeah. I, 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 I had to look it up because this is a pre Hayes Code film, isn't it? Hayes Code came in in 1934. This film in 1927 yeah. um, was, I suppose, this is kind of um, Hollywood's decadent phase before before the Hayes Code tried to clean things up. I had a little look at the the Hayes Code um, and uh, some of the things that it demanded. There, there could be uh, no crime was unpunished in any film. There must be no miscegenation, no no um, interrace relations and uh, no sexual perversion. They say a picture must not lower the moral standards of those who see it, including women, children, the lower classes and susceptible minds. Wow. This is which, which is another kind of yeah. um, ruling that feels like it belongs from sort of three hundred years ago yeah. as well. So that comes after this film. Yeah. So that was six that years could. after this film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely like the yeah the Roaring Twenties, and uh, it it has those moments that feel like it. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, I think um, you, you get this a pretty good sense of like how conservative and traditional. Uh, the community there in the in the Jewish ghetto is uh, compared to him. He's he's you know wearing a, a regular suit by the time he's you know aged ten years and then the, at the uh, sort of the beginning of the second act of this film. Um, so you, you get that sense. I think there's, I mean, just in terms of like comparing it to the Lerman film, 
Um, there's something just simply beautiful about it, though, too. It's just it's a lovely black and white shot uh, film. It's you know they're doing more with lighting and less with bells and whistles, and it definitely is a, it's a landmark film in that sense. I can see why it would be you know considered a top hundred of the for the American Film Institute or whatnot. But um, it, it has its I beauty. Mean, um, but it's, it, it does have a beauty. It, take, it especially loves faces, doesn't it? This film, yeah. which kind of feels ironic when the, you know, the main character completely disguises yeah. their face unrecognisably. But you know, this, this is a film that loves faces. Yeah. And there are a lot of kind of, you know, very detailed close-ups. So not just of Jolson, but of his mother, um, of, you know, Mary D, who's this kind of the, the theatrical dancer. It, you know, it does love um, a close-up. And, and uh, you know, the, the camera is kind to those actors. It does, it does have a lot of themes in common with the Elvis film. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's kind of this whole idea of sort of religiosity and... Um, music coming out of religion and you know both films are broadly respectful of religion as the thing that we've already talked about about how you know black culture is used by white people yeah um but also this idea of the manipulation of artists by by like an agent or a producer um this the, the producer when um when uh, Jackie, when Al Jolson is threatening to to ditch the Hollywood production because you know, his father is ill and he wants to be at his bedside yeah. and he wants to to go to the synagogue, and the producer tells him, "Oh, you don't do. It. I had to write this down." He says, "Don't do this. You'll queer yourself on Broadway, um, and never and get another just, job, right?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and but and just just uh, somehow it was and he, this this line was de- delivered. I think during the scene where Jolson is putting on blackface makeup, and just like like the. The juxtaposition yeah. of using the word queer yeah. and then using a blackface makeup. Yeah. And it just really felt like it was almost as if um, the film was made by aliens who understood that there were some significant words, but didn't understand what it was that they signified, <laughs> yeah. just that they needed to be used. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for a, for a 21st century viewer, it's quite hard to pass what's going yeah. on. Um, the film does also, I've made some little notes here about yeah. the other things it has in common with Elm. It's Supremacy of Family. So there's another film that yeah. really believes in yeah, yeah. family. And it's and it's largely sort of about the shock of the new, isn't it? Yes. Because yep. um, this kind of, the, these raggy time songs, this jazz singing, yep. you know, it's shockingly new. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not something that the older generation are prepared to, to put up with or Precisely. try to understand. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's like an eternal story, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And... Um, um, it's a theme that's quite blatantly uh, spoken to the father at one point. Jack says, "You're of the old world." It's a title card, and it's yeah. I think that that sort of sums it up. And can, it these, these two films, but even just this film, comparing it to how we live today, definitely show you that we've we've gone somewhere. It's a, in a hundred years. We've I would say we've made a lot of progress. Some people would not, perhaps. But you've got these tyrannical father figures in both films. They kind of want to keep things close to home or in Las Vegas for whatever reason, and not um, not really embrace change and and progress. Yeah, so yeah, we have moved forward, haven't we? Yeah, I think well, so. Yeah. Some people would say. Yeah, I, I, I hope we. I hope we have. I hope we have. It's, it's interesting to think that the, um, the, the if if the if the the remake was made in the late seventies, then there there were 50 years between the original jazz singer and the Neil Diamond version yeah. and then 45 years between the Neil Diamond version and our, yeah. our era today wow. it's, it's kind of strange to think of the Neil Diamond version as a, a modern remake when actually yeah. I hope there may well have been more social progress uh, between Neil Diamond's film and today than there was between the original jazz yeah. singer and the remake yeah um 
two other kind of minor connections that I've made to the other film were um, Shaking Pelvis. Ah. In both films, like Al Jolson actually does move around quite a bit um, at the midsection <laughs> in some of his pieces. And I thought, why, why is Elvis getting in trouble 50 years later, or 30 <laughs> years later, 40 years later, um, when Al Jolson's doing it here? Uh, and then the other thing was um, quotes of music. Like, Lorman does this all the time where he, you know, as I said, he might take an Elvis song and have some new performer re-record it in some sort of hip way. Um, where you get these little musical statements throughout. And there are, I caught two quotes there, probably a whole lot more, but um, there's one musical quote of Give My Regards to Broadway at one point. Ah. Uh, and then I think it's when Mary's dancing. There's a Tchaikovsky. Yeah, I, I did pick Juliet up on that. Yes. I forget which piece it was, but I definitely caught it. I don't want to, I'm not going to go back and listen to the whole film again because I don't want to, but uh, there were definitely <laughs> some musical quotes in there, which I thought oh, that's kind of interesting that both directors uh, 95 years apart were we're doing the same thing that way. Maybe some things have changed and some things have not. Yeah. So do you think, would you recommend the jazz singer to anybody who was not a scholar of early cinematic milestones? I don't think I would. No. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure no. that I would. I should as well probably either, wait actually. longer and have the pregnant pause, but I'm going to say <laughs> no. Um, nope. Again, I said there's some beautiful filmmaking in there. Um, I think you know so many people now are we're so far away from that area that people don't even want to look at a black and white film. Um, as you mentioned earlier, there's not a ton of story. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not that, uh, interesting to follow. Um, yeah, I, I feel strangely guilty suggesting that people should watch Baz Luhrmann's Elvis in preference oh to number 90 on the American film industry's list of the greatest American films of all time. Better you than me. <laughs> shall i hand in my critics badge at the door <laughs> collect your belongings and leave yes please i i i, I i'm not going to defend baz Luhrmann, never but um as i said before he's trying very hard i kind of credit a guy who he just wants to go big if you're going to spend 80 million dollars make it a big film make it something that you know states something i guess um or you know or go home go big or go home um so the fact that he put eight years into it um was doing other stuff all along the line, I'm sure, but um, he's not making films that often. There's a pretty big spread, so he's obviously he just wants to do something kind of operatic and large. And that film yeah, is already made, into you it. know, 280 million dollars. So it's obviously paid for itself. There's a market for it, so you know, good for him. I don't want to uh, begrudge the guy. Just I don't like his films, but I, I respect the fact that he puts that much time into it. He's obviously thinking about it. He's definitely trying in that film. He's got a couple political statements, so. Sure, I would probably join you in recommending it over the jazz singer. I mean, that's one film. I mean, I'm not going to say run out and see all this right away at the expense of some real classics. Well, it'd be interesting to see what Baz Luhrmann turns his hand to next. Yeah. I'm wondering what what the what the. I mean, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that he will try to remake the jazz singer. <laughs> no. Because <no. laughs> I mean, in a way, he almost has with Elvis, actually. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, they well, cover well, enough of the same ground that, yeah, he's kind of actually already done it. Thank you. I was just about to uh, suggest a uh, program title for this podcast, Elvis oh, yes. the Baz Singer. Oh. Elvis the Baz Singer. You heard it first. Oh, here. man, you are wasted on us. That is far too good. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's low hanging fruit, my friend, right there. Uh, I I cannot beat that. That's well, I, well, I, I, that's I know when I'm beat. This has been the Two Real Cinema Club. Um, I've enjoyed seeing these two films you know, in a perverse kind of hit yourself, hit yourself in the face with a frying pan kind of way. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we will be back next episode with with two. I hope maybe slightly more watchable films. Yeah. Maybe maybe not. That's that's the excitement of cinema. Um, <laughs> this has been fun as always, and uh, join us next time. Thanks and goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you.